Hello, this is Robert Hope Jones welcoming you back to another edition of the Organist Encores. It was good to hear Damon back at the microphone last week after his earlier bout with the Lurgy and with that sneak peek of his home organ, which he seems to be bringing together nicely. This week I'm rolling back the clock to around 1946. Not that we'll be restricting the music to that year, but rather I'm having a nostalgic flip through the 1946 book, The Theatre Organ World. For those listeners who may not have heard of the book, it was published at a time when the UK cinema organists still meant a great deal to a war-weary nation, and these pop stars were important players, literally, in the war effort. The book remains a wonderful time capsule of a golden era nearing its end. It was published by the Association of Theatre Organists in aid of the Theatre Organist Benevolent Fund and contains many interesting articles by organists of the day. The book was edited by veteran theatre organist Jack Courtney, so let's make him our entry point into the music. Now I only have one recording of Jack in my archive and although the record label didn't include his name, it's thought to be him here anyway playing the Christie unit organ in the elite super cinema Wimbledon. Thank you. 
Jack Courtney there, playing Evensong on the 3-8 Christie. Jack gave us a good idea of the kind of repertoire being played back then in the very early days of the UK's unit orchestra era. Now the book in my hand belonged to my dad, and as a wee boy I can remember flipping through it and being especially intrigued by the 90-odd portrait photographs of organists found inside. Most of them were posing at organ consoles. Flipping through it now, the ones that would have appealed to me or grabbed my attention were the more atmospheric shots. So here on page 128 we have Rudy Lewis clearly sat at the stake Kilburn Wurlitzer. Opposite that is perhaps my favourite image in the book. Geoffrey Keith sat arms crossed at a pristine looking console of the Granada Tooting. Behind him the ornate main curtain lit up by atmospheric stage lighting. Now if I flip to page 98, there we are, we find Alex Taylor sat at a Union Cinema Wurlitzer console. In 1931, Alex presided over the tooting organ for the theatre's lavish opening. Let's listen to him the following year when he cut this disc. <laughs> Taylor there with a very punchy Theresa Crowd, 
at that very special 414 Wurlitzer. My father slept in the Granada Tooting stalls many a night during World War II air raids, awakening early morning for broadcasts by one of his great friends, but we'll leave that story for another time. Suffice to say, he knew many of the organists found among the pages of this very fascinating book. Let's see, who else is in here? Ah, there's Stanley Tudor at the Gaumont Manchester. Ah, Frederick Curzon in a very cinematic, pensive pose. Ah, ah, and there's Molly Forbes, who my father also knew very well. She played at the Paramount Tottenham Court Road after her mentor, Hal Bollington, joined the armed forces. I was unable to find a track of Molly in time for my programme, but let's hear Al at that very prestigious Paramount Compton. characteristic arrangement, melatonin to the fore, etc., on that 412 Compton. My father was extremely lucky uh, in that he was able to hear Geraldo orchestra play on a regular basis, and of course, at the Paramount, that meant that the flamboyant Hal Bollington would also be on the billing with them. Great days indeed. Now, back to our book. Quite a few female stars are to be found in the book, uh, many of them I've never heard play, such as Dagmar Ellison, uh, Doris K. Lamb and Betty Mitchell. Then we have well-known stars like Ina Barga and her sister Florence de Jong. And of course, Doreen Chadwick. Let's go north for a while and hear Doreen at an instrument she was well associated with. And, uh, well, we'll let her make her own introduction. This is Doreen Chadwick welcoming you to the Goldman Theatre Manchester and inviting you to listen to the magnificent Wurlitzer pipe organ. Sit back and enjoy an entertaining programme of tunes old and new. Thank you. 
Juggler played at the 414 Wurlitzer that was once in the Gaumont Cinema, Manchester. I mentioned earlier that some notable organists penned articles in this book. Let's see. Uh, Vic Hammett wrote a piece called Music Behind Barbed Wire, an account about his five and a half years spent in a German prison of war camp. On page 25, Reginald Fort waxes about his travelling organ. Meanwhile, on uh, page 12, finds Con Doherty reminiscing about his wartime entertainment efforts in India, playing a tiny American billhorn folding organ. Conn mentioned how he would often find himself feeling homesick and longing to play a real theatre organ again. Of course, he did make it home safely, and, as the next track will prove, there were some very fine instruments awaiting his return.
there. Kiss me again and dream. Con Doherty at the 319 Wurlitzer in the, wait for it, the Paramount Newcastle. Of course, uh, Don was resident organist there for a time and that was recorded in 1964, many years after that uh, period in India. Right, let's have another flip through the book. Ah, there we go, page 113 and a man in a kilt, the one and only Gerald Shaw stood proudly in front of a Compton console that, uh, according to the information below it, just says the word Odeon. Now those who are keen on Gerald's playing don't need me to wax on about his incredibly imaginative playing and phenomenal keyboard technique. But let's go back now to the Regal Marble Arch days where Shaw was resident organist before he took up his final position at the Odeon Leicester Square. And this piece will show exactly why Gerald was loved so much.
Gerald Shaw there making light work of that four manual 36 rank Christie with his imaginative version of Lullaby of Birdland. For me, one of the most remarkable articles written in this book was by Canadian-born organist Stuart Barry, a frequent broadcaster at Tooting. His piece was titled Memories of Hope Jones, a tribute to the pioneer of the theatre organ. He recalled first hearing the famous landmark Wurlitzer Hope Jones instrument in the Liberty Theatre Seattle and how he also bumped into Hope Jones at Wurlitzer's San Francisco store where he was trying out the demonstration organ. Let me uh, paraphrase just a few lines for you. Had it not been for the First World War, I should never have met one of the most remarkable, indeed unique, visionaries and inventive minds in music, Robert Hope Jones. True, my acquaintance with him was, for me, only too short-lived, for his time was greatly taken up with adding to, elaborating the wonderful creation that is his instrument. He was constantly on the move, when not in the workshop, travelling here and there to supervise, if only briefly, another installation of one of his unit organs. He goes on to say, Later I joined Mallot in California and one day found me playing the demonstration organ in the hall-like floor of the San Francisco branch of the Rudolf Wurlitzer Company. While playing one afternoon, during the lunch hour, I could see out of the corner of my eye a studious-looking head topped with long, silver-grey hair. Well, I had never seen a photograph of Robert Hope Jones, but there he was, the master himself. When I had finished with my musical experiments, the figure came slowly over to me and in the simplest possible manner observed, The name is Hope Jones. Space does not permit of what followed after that, but wherever I could be with this master, this man who revolutionised the architecture of the organ, that was the place for me to be. I asked questions and no end. I poured forth my ideas of the potentialities of his instrument. I debated. I even had the temerity to argue with him. I talked and I talked and talked and talked. He would nod slowly, sometimes in approval, sometimes in thoughtful doubt, and make such reflections Yes, it's possible. It's worth being considered. Of course, what we need is players, and more players. Have you heard of Malot? You like him. Oh, I see. Yet your styles are quite different in a sense. Your approach is different. More on the Wagnerian style. Yes, I can feel the relationship. He goes on. It's been a great pleasure and a privilege to be able to write about the master the Berlioz of the organ, and I only wish that I were given the space to go into chapters. For my part, I can only say that I venerate his memory as a man of singular genius and that I am devoted to his ideas and I unalteringly regard him as worthy of being included in the company of the world's visionary revolutionaries. To all those who play the organ, I give you Robert Hope Jones. Well, there we go. Eugene Stuart Barry in his own words, and obviously greatly overcome by his experience of meeting Hope Jones. Judging by the portrait of Barry in the book, it's probably highly likely that these two characters had some very similar traits. Well, let's hear a segment of Barry at Tooting during a live performance cut during an intermission probably in the mid to late 30s.
Barry and Tooting, giving us a real flavour of the top-notch live entertainment being presented to the British public during the theatre organ's heyday. Barry was certainly ahead of his time there with uh, his arrangements and he certainly didn't hold back any punches with his registrations. Now I can remember talking to Robin Richmond about uh, Barry, who would often come down to the pub where organists would meet, and more often than not, Barry would have under his arm a, a big bundle of sheep music that only added to his eccentric appearance and demeanour. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode as I flipped through my father's copy of the Theatre Organ World. If you've not read it, you'll find various editions for sale on the internet and would make a worthy addition to your library. Well, John Leeming will be back at the microphone next week with his own eclectic mix of music. And, uh, well, as for me, it's time to sign off. Until next time, cheerio. Cheerio.